You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Hey, welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, excited to be able to teach this morning and share with you some things I've been learning in the Word. Uh, we're continuing our time through the Sermon on the Mount. We're now in chapter 6, and uh, it's all about worship. So um, at some point those slides will come up. But um, essentially what we've even been doing this morning as, as Tyson and, and the worship team and then Marcus have led us into worshiping together Uh, Matthew chapter 6, the beginning part, is all about our worship. Um, And so I love you all here. Even if I don't know you, I love you. Um, I do hope that as you listen, that in a way your feelings get hurt, right? I mean, that's why we learn from the Word. We came to hear because we need to hear because we don't naturally uh, live in the the obedience and and worship towards God as we should, which is why He patiently, generously, thoughtfully provides us instruction. I hope that as you're listening here today, um, that what you hear um, through the, the proclamation of God's Word cuts to your heart in a way to where you do feel uh, a sense of um, just conviction, right? Um, so excited, as I said, to, to look at Matthew chapter 6. I do want to say we're going to continue some some themes from Matthew chapter 5. So in chap- Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, we're really focusing on our, um, our heart as it pertains to how we treat others, right? How we think about others. And now in Matthew chapter 6, we're transitioning to our heart as it relates to us and our relationship with God and, and how our sin interferes with that relationship with Him. Um, in Matthew chapter 5, we saw kind of the pattern was, you have heard that, it's, that it was said, but I say. And now we're going to see a lot of, um, and when you either give, pray, or fast, don't do it this way, but when you give, pray, or fast, do it this way. So it's instruction, it's clarity around how to think about those things, what not to do, what not to focus on in those things. Um, and so uh, that, that's where we're headed for today. I'm uh, going to start off with our summary sentence here, which says, as believers... It's tempting to seek the praise of others even in the midst of our outward worship and obedience. But Jesus warns us that our worship should be centered on God and flow from a desire to honor Him. As believers, it is tempting to seek the praise of others even in the midst of our outward worship and obedience. But Jesus warns us that our worship should be centered on God and flow from a desire to honor Him. For our kids, God is more important than anyone and anything else and is the only one who should be worshipped. So the question here, as you're you're writing this down, is who are we worshipping in our worship? Who are we seeking to honor in our giving of honor? Through the outward display of our worship, who is the focus? Jesus is calling us to replace those superficial, outward actions with genuine worship of God. Our acts of outward worship should come from a sincere heart and desire to honor God. Um, And and to me, what's really so sad about what Jesus is teaching us about here is um, that God as our Father clearly deserves worship clearly deserves all the glory. But we as 
Prideful, selfish, self-centered children often try to take from him what is rightfully his because we're, we're focused on ourselves. So um, think about um, you know, a child that you may have seen. Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's out in public um, who's displaying what we often do internally, right? Just a very strong selfishness and pride. Um, and them taking from their good father, taking from their, their family, their brother, their sister, what's rightfully theirs, and just greedily taking it, even though clearly it's not theirs. And that's what we're talking about here. We, as God's children, selfishly focused on ourselves, taking from him, our good father, what only belongs to him. It's so blatant when we see it, when we demonstrate it by others. But that's what we're talking about here. That's what's been displayed that Jesus is going to point out about these, these hypocrites, these scribes and Pharisees. But he's calling us to recognize that we too are prone to that to recognize it, to see it, to call it out, to fight it. And he's going to give us some good instruction about how to fight it, about how to think clearly, how to see things clearly today. So I want to read uh, Matthew chapter 6, the first verse for us here. Um, and it's, it's a warning. Verse 1 in chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Now, this warning kind of is an umbrella warning for the giving, the warning with giving, the warning with praying, and the warning with fasting. This is kind of that umbrella warning for us to think about. It's, it's, the, it's the only part where we see this beware, right? And so he starts off with uh, warning us about practicing our righteousness. So you think about what... That, that's terminology we might not use today, but practicing our righteousness are just the outward actions of our worship, which consist of giving, praying, fasting, right? Those are outward demonstrations, hopefully, of something that's happened inwardly for us. So Jesus warns us and says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, which if you think about his call to us to be salt and light, it's, he's actually told us in that regard to let our displays of obedience be seen by others, right? So if we look back at Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. But right here he's just told us, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And the difference is, is that in chapter 5 he finishes with, that they'd see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Chapter 6, the warning is, beware of doing these things just to be seen. That that shouldn't be your reason. That your reason for displaying these acts of righteousness, this obedience, is so that you would be a pointer to someone else and not to yourself. Okay? Um. There's a, a commentator I read gives a helpful explanation of these two different passages here. He says, we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. When I'm nervous about praying in public because of how I'll be seen, that's a great reason to pray in public. When I'm nervous about hiding, show. When I'm nervous about provide, taking responding to someone um, homeless on the, on the street. Who cares what the onlookers think about me? When you're, when you're tempted 
to hide you should show. On the other hand, in my arrogance, when I want to boast and take advantage of this opportunity to be seen by others as great and worthy and awesome, that's the precise time I should be stepping back and hiding and trying to get back into not being seen. So that's the, uh, a helpful way for us to think about the difference between those two, um, the, the callings in, in terms of what we do in front of people. Um, it took me to thinking about uh, sports. So if, if you happen to watch any sports right now, there's been just this really odd, um, I'll say, environment that's happened with sports. So um, if you're watching on television, if you're not careful, you may actually believe that these crowds are filled with tons of people because you hear crowd noise. And, and in some instances, I think they have started to bring back crowds. Um, and if you, if you watch for long enough, you'll notice there's actually not that many people in the stadium. In some instances, um, I watched an NFL game not too long ago. And I, I mean, even when the the athletes scored a touchdown. It was like the crowd noise went up. There was nobody in the stadium. And it got me thinking about this, this passage because, in a sense, these athletes have been prone to be celebrated, have been prone to be um, admired, and in a sense, worshipped for so long throughout their athletic career that to not have crowd noise affects their performance negatively, right? They need the noise so that it feels normal. They need the admiration of fans who are cheering and hollering and and screaming and celebrating so that they can perform normally because it's just so ingrained in who they are as a professional athlete, right? And so they pipe in this crowd noise into these stadiums to make them feel like things are normal, even though technically it feels more like a practice game if you take all the noise away, right? And for it to be a practice game, a scrimmage, well, that doesn't really feel the same, right? I don't get the, the energy. I don't get the, the sense of gratification because there's not a crowd watching and celebrating me as I perform. So they, say, so they bring in this, this, um, this crowd noise, they pipe it in, and that's what, uh, for these Pharisees, for these scribes, for these hypocrites, that's what Jesus is telling us not to be like. Don't be like those individuals who want and crave that noise in their life, that admiration of others. Instead, be a light that points the crowd noise to somebody else, who, that points the admiration, the worship to the one who deserves it, right? Um, I said uh, in my notes here, the problem is that sinful man has turned the end into the means, Worship is the end for all of us before God, but we're tempted to use worship as a means to esteem ourselves, to look great before others. But worship was never meant to be the purpose to get somewhere else. It's the end of what we should be doing. It's the end of what we should be offering to God, not a way to get something else from somebody. I said, uh, what the hypocrites crave, long for, are more worshipers of themselves. They're saying, see me do this and treasure me. They worship themselves and crave recognition so others will worship them as well. And Jesus says, that's the reward that they're going to get. But but that's it. We're going to see in just a little bit that what they want, that admiration, that praise, they'll get it, but that's all they're going to get. And so Now it's a call for us to recognize and be able to determine the value of things. And 
um, as I was thinking about, you know, valuing things, it, it led me to think about if you um, are familiar with a pawn shop, right? If you happen to own a business where you sell odds and ends of things, um, that whole, your whole occupation is about your ability to value something, to see it, to recognize what is this worth before I buy it, and am I going to be able to sell it? Am I going to be able to make someone else think that the value is enough to where I can make some money off of it? And so what Jesus is, is really calling us to here is our ability to see and recognize things as they are so that we can put appropriate value to them. Um, there are two types of rewards that are going to be talked about here, and the first one is a lesser, finite now reward from man, right? Praise, admiration, which, you know, lasts for a moment and you have to keep feeding it, right? But the other reward is this greater, infinite, then reward from God our Father, forever life with him in glory. The, the beauty of this is that Jesus is telling us to go after the reward that's infinitely better. He doesn't have to convince you that you, to want something that's not better. Just want what's better. Want the infinitely greater reward. And, and that should be easy for us, but it's our pride that clouds our, our thinking and our, our sin that clouds our heart from actually valuing things the way that they truly are. What's great about this uh, as well is that concern for self and wanting what's better is not in opposition of worshiping God. You can literally want what is best for you and be aligned to submitting your life to God. They go together. Jesus isn't telling you to give up what's best and give up what you should want more and follow him instead and worship him instead. He's saying do both because they go together. We deceive ourselves when we think that the praise of man or whatever the world has to offer right now in my life could even compare to the reward of being with God, of belonging to him, of living with him for eternity, right? Um, He's the author of salvation. So if you want salvation, come to him. He's the true provider of peace. You want peace? Go to him. He's the only source of security. You want security? Come to him. You want to be fully satisfied? You want to be truly known? Come to him. You want significance that matters? Come to him. You want to be genuinely cared for? Come to him. But if instead you want people to clap for you, envy you, to think you're better than they are, if instead you want others to think you're the smartest, wealthiest, prettiest, strongest, if you want other people to think they could never be as great as you are, if you want to fill up a funeral home one day with people talking about how awesome you were, if you want to pipe in some crowd noise into your life to make yourself feel better, then you're a terrible judge of value. You should never own a pawn shop. This is a question about our ability to see things as they truly are, to value them as they truly are and as God has defined them to be. 
So let's get into these areas together. The first is giving. True worship through our giving to others. For the kids, uh, giving to help others is one way we can honor God. So this is about our faith as it acts towards others. The outward work of our faith as it acts towards others. Uh, giving can be defined as any act of mercy, but it includes actual giving of something, right? Not simply good intentions or warm feelings, as James tells us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If someone's in need, don't give them your words. Give them your stuff. Give them your time, right? That's what giving is. It's not words, but it's the actual transaction of something to help them, right? Um, Jesus gives us these, the, the bad example here of giving, driven by misplaced worship. So we go back to the text here. Uh, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So it would have been common during this time for Pharisees, scribes, to try to time up their giving when there were large onlookers, whenever the people were coming into the market or, or maybe a specific feast that's going on. These hypocrites were known for conveniently timing up their generous giving with the people who are coming by and, and looking at what's happening. Um, Jesus says, they have received the reward they were after, and it's done. They wanted the praise of man, and they got it, and sadly, that's it, right? So back to that understanding of true value. They got this little trinket of praise. That's what they were after, and they got it. Other examples of this if uh, you may be familiar with would be Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They claim to have sold all this land and be so generous, but yet held back some, and it ended up costing them their lives. They wanted the acclaim of others. Look at how great that couple is over there and what they did that was so awesome. But they were lying, and instead they ended up both perishing because of it. So, Jesus responds with right instruction for sincere giving by saying, But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this right hand, left hand, you know, sounds like a magic trick, I don't know. Um, but essentially it's that our right hand is what we would normally use for most of the things we do without even thinking, right? If, unless you're left-handed. But most of us who are right-handed, we will grab things, hold things, pull things, take things, and not even think about it. It's just so common. And we use our left hand a lot less for, for things where we only need one hand to do it. And so the idea here is that our giving should just be natural, instinctive. Like, you just do it. Don't worry about trying to contemplate or, or you know, um, plan it out. You just give. Just be generous and just give. Just a natural, I'm going to pick this up, I'm going to move that over there. Just like me using my right hand is how our giving should be. Um, some good examples of giving I have here. Um, 
and, and not just giving, but giving that connects back to God's glory. So um, if you've been studying with us in our small groups, we've been looking at Philippians. So I wanted to point us to Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Then he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. These Philippians were the ones who were generously giving, and it was this sacrifice, this offering that was lifted up that for Paul and for them was an act of worship to God. They didn't want credit for what they had done. They didn't want Paul to, to write a whole long um, you know, letter to all the other churches about them, they're just generously giving. They're just using their right hand, just giving generously time and again. The other area that's helpful for thinking about giving is 2 Corinthians 9. It's the passage about uh, the cheerful giver, and it again connects giving to God's glory. Paul says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, right? It's about our heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God is the ultimate giver that enables our giving. As it's written, God, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, now it turns from just the generosity of giving to what it produces on the back end of giving which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution from them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. We're not talking about just tangible things that are being given. It's what they produce on the other side of being given. It's the the worship and the glory and the thanksgiving. He is the one who provides so that I can provide so that we can rejoice. It's not just the sum of the parts, of the value of the things that are being given. It's the worship that's produced on the other end of giving it. So that's what we're seeking to do in our giving. And so I'll say for us as a church, Ben posted about our giving recently, and wow, we set out on the, at the beginning of the year and committed 
uh, an amount to give, and by the end of, of nine months of the year, we've almost met a whole 12 months of what we had committed to give. We've been blessed, and we've been blessed in order to bless so that God receives thanksgiving and glory for it. What we could be tempted to think is, wow, look at us. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've put together. Let's compare ourselves, right? Let's see what other people are giving. Let's see how they're doing. We've missed the opportunity to glorify God, to value things as they are, to value God's glory over dollars, right? Let's not miss that opportunity. And I've seen multiple people post on there, praise God, he's faithful, he's generous. This is incredible. That's what it should result in. Let's protect our hearts from it being anything other than that. Um, next is, is prayer. True worship through prayer to God. So for our kids, prayer always includes God since he is who we are speaking to. This is about our faith as it acts towards God. It can be defined as genuine expressions of worship and heartfelt requests and appeals. You can think about prayer simply as communion with God. The very nature of prayer is that God is involved, right? We're talking to him. The religious leaders in this day, though, had made prayer into a routine, that you pray at certain times, you pray in certain places, you pray certain passages, very structured. The, the prayers were prescribed, formalized, and completely disconnected from a genuine desire or need for prayer. Most oftentimes, it was just something you could repeat as a kind of a semi-conscious religious exercise. You didn't even really have to think about what you were saying. You're just supposed to say it. It's just something you do. Um, and, and so there really was no aspect of communion with God. It was just repetitive words coming out of my mouth. They were also tempted, or, or they also displayed just long and drawn-out prayers, trying to impress others. And Jesus points this out in Mark chapter 12, verse 40. The scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers, right? They want to impress others with how long their prayers can go, how extensive their knowledge must be, right? They're just awesome prayers, right? The, um, the bad example here that Jesus give, gives us, the, a bad example driven by misplaced worship, Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward again, that praise of man. Um, the, the religious leaders, again, they're planning ahead their time and location. Oh, I didn't know today was festival day. I'm just out here praying real long, real loud on the street corner, right? They love to be seen by others is what Jesus says. And then he gives us right instruction for genuine prayer. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's saying, do whatever you need to do to focus your attention, not on yourself, not on others, but on me. Now, as he's saying, 
whenever you can only pray in a closet with the door shut? Absolutely not, right? Jesus himself prays in front of the disciples at times, right? He gives thanks when he goes to feed the 5,000 and gives thanks to the Father. He's saying, go somewhere where you can focus. If you're praying in a group, focus on me, right? I am the one you're speaking to. Speak to me. If, if my mind and my heart aren't connected in what I'm doing, then I'm probably not praying. I'm saying things to myself. Or I'm, again, just reciting words over and over again. It also doesn't mean that prayer can't be repetitious if it is connected to our heart. It can be, right? It's all about where my heart is and who I'm focusing on in the midst of my prayer. Um, so he goes on here past the hypocrites and gives another bad example, but this time that's not driven by wrong worship, but it's driven by wrong understanding. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. These, many, these empty phrases are idle, thoughtless chatter. It's probably influenced by how they would have worshipped false gods, where they had to like beseech the God all day long and try to convince their God to do something. And so it's like, I'm just going to keep praying until finally he does something. And so there's a chance here that these Gentiles, as they pray, it's been influenced by how they would have prayed for their false gods, and now it's like all about just a lot of words and just really long prayers to try to convince him to hear them and act on their behalf. This is uh, also what we see with, uh, in the Buddhist religion, the spinning of the wheels. They believe that every time the wheel turns, that prayer is offered up to their God. So it's that repetitious prayer. Um, also with, the, uh, with Catholic religion, the rosemary beads are meant to be able to be counted off for the number of, of um, prayers that you would offer up. So it's like this, this numeric component of prayer that, as, uh, that, that many believe would uh, impact their ability to convince God or their false God to act on their behalf to hear them. There's two important implications here as, as Jesus gives us the right understanding for genuine prayer. He says, don't be like them. Here's the reason why. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So he's saying, Using more words in your prayers doesn't influence God's ability or willingness to listen and act. So the good news for us is that there's no pressure to be eloquent in your prayer or extensive in your prayer. He's given us freedom in that to where he's saying, don't worry about the length or the, um, the fancy words in your prayer. And then secondly, God's knowledge of our needs doesn't change the necessity to pray to him. He's not about to say, God knows what you need before you ask it, so don't ask it. He's about to give us the example to ask for it. So it's not a reason not to pray. His knowing what we need before we ask him is even more reason to come to him and ask him because he sees it all clearly. He knows it all perfectly. My, prayer, my praying to him isn't about me telling God what to do. Instead, it's of me coming before him because he knows all the details and then having my relationship with him strengthened, my trust fortified, and my heart shaped through my prayers to him. 
John MacArthur said, if your request is sincere but not according to his will, he'll answer in a way better than we want or expect. He will always answer. So Jesus gives us a proper understanding of prayer, but then he gives us an example of it, right? I mean, how gracious of him to say, here's how to pray, right? He says, um, it says the, the Lord's Prayer, he says, pray then like this. He gives a simple but marvelously complex just structure or skeleton for us to use for prayer. He says, our Father in heaven, which reflects that family relationship that we enjoy with God. Hallowed be your name. God, spread the knowledge of your holiness throughout the world. Spread an understanding of your glory and power throughout the world. That your name would be lifted up above everything else. Hallow your name, Father. Your kingdom come as his loyal subject, sovereign to our king. Bring your kingdom. Your will be done. We submit to your plan. Servants to our master. Let your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Talking about the present right now. We're completely dependent on you for today. I cannot sustain myself. Give me what I need for today. And forgive us our debts. Talking about the past. I'm completely dependent on you for what I've done in the past. I need you to forgive me. I need that in order to be with you, to enjoy a relationship with you. He says, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and he'll talk about forgiveness in just a moment, lead us not into temptation. Talking about the future. God, we trust you to faithfully take us where we need to go. We can't see ahead. You can Lead us. We trust you to lead us where we need to go. He says, but deliver us from evil. From beginning to the end, Jesus' example of how to pray is all about God. We don't see ourselves in the midst of the prayer as the focus of the prayer. The focus is on God. His worthiness, His power, His provision, His glory. The example Jesus gives us puts God right at the center of our prayers. And then he gives us this short commentary on forgiveness. He says, uh, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And simply put, the forgiven forgive. It's who we are in Christ. It's a part of our new nature that we bestow on others what's been bestowed on us. It's what we see in Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then Marcus quoted 1 John earlier up here, uh, which says, uh, chapter 2, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If I say I'm in him, I should be doing what he does. The forgiven forgive is what Jesus is pointing out here for us. It's the same thing you see in Genesis 50 with Joseph and his brothers. The same thing you see with Stephen as he's dying in Acts 7 before the people who are stoning him. 
The forgiven forgive. The last area is fasting here. True worship through our fasting. For our kids, fasting is a way we can focus our hearts and minds on God. So this one's a little bit more interesting. We may not be as familiar with it, but it's about our faith as it acts in relation to ourselves. Um, so for most of us, fasting may be something that we're actually more familiar with because it's like a way to diet, right? You do uh, extended fasting um, uh, throughout the day, or maybe even um, you're familiar with Lent, right, where you give something up um, for a period of time the, throughout the, the year as a way to you know, in a way to, to worship, hopefully, right? But what's interesting is that fasting in Scripture is never tied to a practical aspect of, like, fasting to diet, to lose weight, or fasting to um, not watch as much um, football. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but fasting has no practical components to it in Scripture. It's always, it always is done in connection with the spiritual component. And always also includes prayer in some way. Um, other examples of fasting in the Bible include Moses, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel. And then in the New Testament, Anna, John the Baptist and his disciples, Jesus fast, Paul and others. So in all those examples, there's a, there's a spiritual component to the reason why they're fasting. It's not fasting because of some kind of outward practical reason in, um, to do it. Well, one commentator I read said uh, just that genuine fasting is simply a part of concentrated, intense prayer and concern for the Lord, His will, and His work. Uh, I know um, maybe close to a year ago or so, um, Marcus taught on fasting. If you're interested in learning more about it, I would encourage you to, to look at some of the podcasts that we have if you want to learn more about fasting. Um, Jesus gives us here this bad example driven by that misplaced worship again for fasting when he says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fast, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward, that praise. So the Pharisees, they're, they're making themselves look like they're just so worn out and so depleted of energy because they're fasting, right? They're so spiritual. Come look at how spiritual I am by how I've made myself look outwardly. And Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, clean yourself up, basically, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I want to go to just some application for us. Uh, three application questions. And then I want us to look at, at a text together. So three questions. Kind of this top question here. Am I a good judge of value? Some, some other helpful questions here about value. Am I convinced of God's definition of value? Or am I trusting the world's definition of value? What type of reward am I focused on? The finite worldly version? Or the infinite heavenly one? So am I a good judge of value? Do I see things 
not just as God sees them, because God determines how they are. So the question is, am I seeing things as they are? Or am I deceiving myself to view what the world has to offer and how it makes me feel as more valuable than what God says is valuable? Am I a good judge of value? The uh, second question for us, am I, am I faithful to give, pray, and fast? Right? That's what Jesus is talking about here, right? These specific outward displays of worship. Other displays of worship for us, just as we're thinking about this, would be as we're singing together, right? Um, as we're having Bible study together, right? These are opportunities for us to be tempted towards displaying our own worthiness in the midst of that. Listen to my voice. Look at my posture. Be adm- admire my knowledge, right? We so quickly are tempted to step in and say, look at me, worship me, and take away what's rightfully his in those moments. Do I need to make these spiritual disciplines more of a priority in my life? Is a good question for us to ask. What changes do I need to make to guard myself from boasting in these areas? When I'm tempted to hide, I should show. But when I'm tempted to show, I should hide, right? And the third question, who am I worshiping or seeking worship for when I give, pray, and fast? Where do my thoughts tend to go in corporate worship settings? Am I actually here? I like to say, if you're going to be here, be here. If we're worshiping through song, worship through song. If we're worshiping through prayer or through getting into the Word together, be doing that. Be where you are. Be present, especially in worship settings like these. Um, so I wanted to, to just briefly take our attention I had to tell my D group guys this was all uh, just God's faithfulness to me um, in such a uh, an amazing way. As I sat down to study earlier this week, um, you know, we had our D group on Wednesday, and I was conflicted: should I study Matthew six or Philippians three? I went to Philippians three because I was meeting later with my guys group, and man, God was faithful. So I want to take you where God took me and show you how it connects to Matthew 6 this morning. So the beginning of uh, Philippians 3, verse 1. This is Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and then here comes the pride part, and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, don't boast about what you've done to yourself physically. Don't put any weight in that. Don't think about how much you know. Don't think about what all you've experienced. Don't think about how you look. Don't put any weight in that. Then he says, though, 
I mean, if we're talking about boasting in flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, if you want to boast, you can't boast as much as I can. You want to put your religion on display? You've got nothing compared to me. So Paul sets the bar for all of us who are in here today or listening that we have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. We don't bring anything to offer up and say, look at how great I am at this Christianity thing. We can't bring anything into this. We start with nothing. We end with nothing. Then Paul says, here's what I have. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's got it all. He's got a, the full house of everything you could boast about from a religious perspective. We, have, we can't offer anything. So in our minds, Leave your good works to the side. That's, those are table stakes, right? That's what we're meant to do. Don't bring that in and attribute that to how great you are. But, and then he frames for us up how we should think about those outward um, accomplishments. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that, and then he lists off these rewards that God, our Father, who sees in secret, will reward us with, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You want a reward? Want righteousness. Don't seek glory. Glory's taken. Seek righteousness. And Christ is the only one who can offer it. The, there's no more glory left. It's all been taken. You can't bring anything and earn anything. It's all His. But what you can long for is righteousness. And if you want that, you want Christ. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had every reason to boast, and it was all trash to him because of the infinitely valuable reward of knowing and being known by God through Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you know Him? Is His righteousness your righteousness? And for the believer, don't look for glory. It's taken up. There's none left over. Continue to seek righteousness in Christ and worship the only one that's worth worshiping. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to You for knowing our hearts and what we're prone towards, for in patience and love, giving us your word to instruct us and to align our hearts to where they should be. I pray for us this morning that as we're 
um, inclined to put ourselves at the forefront of our hearts and minds, that we would recognize the emptiness of that and instead to put you at the forefront, to focus on the majesty of who you are, the love for which you've shown us in Christ, to look for ways to to give to others, to be generous with what you've given to us that we may increase worship of you, to come to you in prayer sincerely with a heart that's connected to the words we speak. Father, that when we fast, when we give things up, that the purpose of them would be to draw closer to you, to know you more deeply, more fully. Thank you for the opportunity to worship through your word this morning. Continue to press in on our hearts to make us aware of those times when we are inclined to hide when we should show and tempted to show when we should hide. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.